Hello, hello, it's Jacob Hill with GRC Academy. I'm here with Dr. Ron Ross from NIST. Dr. Ross, how are you today? Oh, Jacob, I'm doing great, and it's, it's great to be with you today. Thank you so much for coming on. And folks, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to like, comment, subscribe, share, review, all the things. And thanks in advance, it really helps me out. Ron, could you tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Uh, sure, Jacob, I'd be happy to. I, I actually started out as a career Army officer. I spent almost 21 years in, in the Army. I retired in 1993, went to work for the private sector for about almost four years. And then in 1997, I decided to come to NIST and work on some cybersecurity projects that were front and center at the time. And I've been there going on 26 years now. It's been a long run. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. There's really no better place to work in the world, I think, than NIST because the work is important. It has both national and economic security implications. And every day is a challenge. We have great people to work with, not just at NIST, but within the federal government and across all of our partners uh, within the private sector. So it, it's just been a, a great experience. And I look forward to getting up every day still at my ripe old age and look forward to hitting the ground and facing that next challenge. That's awesome. NIST is involved in a lot of different areas, as you alluded to. Can you tell us what the overall mission is at NIST? Well, NIST has a, a fairly large portfolio. Uh, we're part of the Department of Commerce. And overall, we have around 3,000 scientists and engineers. We're non-regulatory. And so the primary focus is on doing good science and engineering to further the economic interests of the United States. And, and then one of the laboratories that I happen to work in is the Information Technology Laboratory. And that's the home of both of our cybersecurity divisions. One of those divisions is the Computer Security Division, uh, led by Matt Scholl. And that focuses on the kind of the core security standards and guidelines that we produce for the federal government and the contractors that work for the government and or support the government. And then the other division run by Kevin Stein is the Applied Cybersecurity Division. They take the core standards and guidelines and apply them to some people might call them vertical sectors like healthcare or finance or logistics. The cybersecurity framework is home on that side of the house. So there's a lot of things going on under the NIST portfolio. We've been doing security now, believe it or not, for over 50 years. So it's been a long run overall for our cybersecurity mission space. Wow, that's amazing. And you've worked on many of the NIST special publications that I'm familiar with, 853, uh, RMF, 171. Can you talk about some of those that you've worked on? Well, when I first came to NIST, I started out on the Common Criteria Project. That was really the first large-scale international cyber security standard. And it ended up becoming, uh, I think it was ISO, IEC, IEEE 15408. It's still around today, provides fundamental security functional requirements and security assurance requirements. Uh, after that effort, uh, I ended up starting to work on the FISMA project. Around 2003, the uh, Congress passed the FISMA legislation. Actually, it was 2002. You know, signed by President Bush in 2003. And at that time, NIST was called out for some very specific standards and guidance documents that were part of the legislation that we were tasked to do. That's where I first got involved. I think one of our very first standards was uh, the FIPS 200, FIPS 199. That's the minimum security standards uh, for the federal government. The impact levels under FIPS 199. And then, of course, we were required to develop security controls for the government. That ended up being our ETER-53 public. All of that kind of got wrapped up into one of our frameworks called the Risk Management Framework that you mentioned. That's NIST Spec Pub 8 here at 37. And that's kind of a full process and full service operation. Each of those steps in the RMF point to different special publications, and it really provides a full service set of 
standards and guidelines for any federal agency to use to help build their program and secure their systems and information. That's fascinating. How would you characterize the difference between a standard and a framework? Frameworks are pretty loosely defined. Uh, there's mm-hmm. lots of things that kind of masquerade as frameworks. The ones that we're most familiar with at NIST would be the cybersecurity framework, the privacy framework, and the risk management framework. Mm-hmm. And those are concepts that bring together a lot of different things under one umbrella. And under that umbrella, you may have specific callouts for standards and guidance documents. So NIST publishes three different types of publications, at least in the cybersecurity world. We have our FIPS, which are federal information processing standards, and those have the full force of OMB policy behind them. So they're mandatory for all federal agencies. Then one step down from that, we have something called special publication. That would be like the NIST 837 or 853. Those are special pubs that are a little bit more technical in nature and provide more specificity. Then there's a third type. It's called an interagency or internal report. And those IRs are documents that deal more with research and development. They're when we're first diving into a specific area that might be new, and it's not quite ready for prime time yet, but we want to get the results out to share with our customers, get comments, and then mature the concept. So those three types of publications could be used in any number of different frameworks, for example. Mm -hmm. That's the difference in those two concepts. Thank you. Can you tell us about the joint task force and what your role is there? That's actually one of my favorite projects ever. When I first started working on the FISMA project, believe it or not, we were working on a control catalog that was 853. But at the same time, in the federal government, we didn't have one set of controls for the entire government. We had at least three different sets that were, I would consider, major competitors at that point. Maybe not competitors because they were focused on different organizations. So in the intelligence community, which at that time we had called the Sweet 16 Intel Agencies, NSA, CIA, DIA, and 16 total. They used what they called the DSCID um, 6-9, I believe it was. It was a set of security control for that community. At the same time, the DOD had their own certification accreditation process called the DITSCAP. It evolved into the DIACAP, but they had a specific set of DOD controls. They called them information assurance controls at that point in time. So around 2008, I started having conversations with the senior leadership in the intelligence community in the DOD, and I I made an offer they couldn't refuse. I said, why don't you all kind of partner with NIST? Let us develop the standards and the guidelines for cybersecurity, and then you guys can focus on intel and fighting the wars, doing the things that you do best, and let let us consolidate all those. So we established something called the Joint Task Force. And that included all the different agencies on the intel side. It included the DOD and NIST. And the idea was that as we were developing the NIST 853, I believe it was revision three at that point, we had all these different partners around the table that could bring their particular focuses to to the table, like the DSCID 6-9, the IA controls from DOD, all of those were brought in to our working group and we integrated all of those into one unified security control catalog, which ended up being NIST 853 Rev 3. That was the first iteration under the joint task force. And then the DOD and the IC agreed to adopt five NIST special publications 
as if they were their own under the joint task force. And of course, that was the risk management framework, the risk assessment guideline. I think it was NIST 853, obviously, and then 53 alpha, the assessment guidelines. Those five publications then now were uniformly adopted with the approval of the Intel, the DOD committee. So now we were working much more efficiently, and that's a great thing for the taxpayers long term, and I think built better security over the last couple of decades. That's really fascinating to hear. I got my start in the compliance arena when we were talking about moving to RMF. Thank you very much for sharing that. That's very fascinating. Let's talk about continuous monitoring. What is needed to enable a quality continuous monitoring program? We actually started the continuous monitoring effort as part of the risk management framework. That was one of the original steps of the RMF. And the idea was when you sent your system through the authorization process or ATO as it's known, that's a decision by a senior leader on whether to accept the risk that remains in that system after they've done everything they can to apply the safeguards, the countermeasures to, to lock down that system as best as they can. At some point, you got to go, you got to operate. So you look at that residual risk and you say, good enough or not good enough. That's kind of a static point in time decision. But with the complexity and the systems changing as much as they do and growing and morphing, we discovered very early on that it wasn't good enough to have a static decision. You always had to go to a follow-on. Once the ATO was issued, you're basically in a continuous monitoring. You're trying to determine, do I have any changes to the hardware, the software, the firmware, policies, procedures, people? Any kind of a change can perturb that original security state, which formed the basis of that authorization decision. That was the genesis. Well, fast forward now, that sounds like a great idea, and it is a good idea. But if you try to apply continuous monitoring to incredibly complex systems, you are spreading yourself really thin. Even with the advancements in scanning technology and artificial intelligence and machine learning, all of those things now are being applied to all these tools that we have to help defend our system. But even given all those sophisticated next-gen tools, you can never get ahead of complexity because don't forget the adversaries are also having access to those next-gen tools as well. So as fast as you try to monitor and discover the vulnerabilities and close those down, the adversary is probably two or three steps ahead of you because the sheer volume of that attack surface. So the bottom line answer is continuous monitoring is great, but it works a whole lot better when you manage the complexity of the system and the infrastructure. In other words, smaller is better in the world of cybersecurity. And we have a lot of these principles too that are very foundational, least privilege, least functionality. All of those are targeted at reducing the attack surface. So we have a better chance of managing that surface and protecting the systems that we're charged with protecting. I think over time, continuous monitoring is going to get better and better with the types of tools we're producing, we're developing, innovating. But there'll be a glass ceiling on how much that monitor can be effective until we reduce that overall complexity of our system. Talk to us about the history of 800-171, what agencies were involved at the beginning, the driving needs, and uh, give us that backstory. We're right in the middle of the big update right now, so this is a very timely topic. We just finished our initial public uh, review period for that first draft that we uh, issued a couple months ago. So we have to go back to, I believe it was 2014. There were a lot of cyber attacks happening at that time. We, we had the NIST suite of standards and guidelines at that time. We had 853, we had the RMF. But the basic idea was this. Around 2010, there was an executive order. It was called Controlled Unclassified Information. And in that executive order, NARA, the National Archives and Records Administration, was tasked with doing two things. 
kind of restructuring all of the different data types, information types that the federal government had. And there were hundreds and thousands of those types of data. It was overwhelming. It was it was confusing. There wasn't a lot of consistency. So they sat down with all the feds around a table and said, what are the data types that we want to define? And they did that. It took them two, three years to get that done, but they ended up with 82 categories and subcategories, which sounds like a lot, but it's a lot less than we had before. The other half of their mission was to develop safeguards for all those types of information that we deem CUI, controlled on class information. Now, they looked to NIST for that because we had already developed the RMF, we had the controls, and we had basically three impact levels that all federal information fell into. It was either high impact, moderate, or low impact. There was a decision made that control that class information, it wasn't going to be low impact because that would be too low. It, it was more important than low impact. It wasn't high impact in all cases. So they chose the moderate impact level, which came with a starting set of security controls in NIST 853. That's how it all started on the federal side. Well, then, since we were doing a lot of contracting, we always have, and that period was no exception. We had information that was deemed controlled on class information on our side, on the federal side. What happens when that information goes over the fence and ends up in a contractor system? Well, the idea is the information did not lose value because it goes over the fence to the contractor. So we wanted to have an appropriate set of safeguards and countermeasures defined for CUI when it was in non-federal systems and organizations. We looked at the modern baseline, and one of the things that we discovered was that our security controls deal with confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Unauthorized disclosure, unauthorized modification, and then the, the availability aspect. The executive order for CUI was only concerned with one of those pillars, and that was unauthorized disclosure confidentiality. Mm -hmm. The other thing we, we discovered is that there were some things in our modern baseline of security controls that were unique to the federal government. We talked about the authorization decision, for example. The mm -hmm. private sector doesn't have an ATO. They may have something that looks like an ATO, but it's not really called an ATO. So we decided that we were going to tailor that moderate baseline. And what does tailoring mean? It means getting rid of stuff, basically. Yeah. We tailored out all of the controls that were federally unique. We also got rid of all the controls that were not strictly tied to confidentiality. And also integrity came along because it turns out that all the safeguards and countermeasures that deal with unauthorized disclosure, those mechanisms also address integrity for the most part. But the availability controls, we got rid of those. And we also simplified the language so it wasn't quite as heavy. The output of that activity was the NIST 800 And that came out in 2015. And at the time, that publication, as it still is today, applies to every federal agency that is dealing with CUI and contractors or non-federal organizations. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until later, 2017, 2018, that the DOD started to develop their CMMC program. And a lot of people mistakenly think that our 8171 is part of the CMMC program, but in reality, it's not. It has nothing to do with that program. We developed the technical guidance. DOD just happened to take that guidance and point to it in one of their defense federal acquisition regulations, or now maybe a couple of them that they're developing. When a, when a federal agency points to one of our publications, which are typically not mandatory, unless it's a FIPS, I call that weaponizing the NIST guidance document. Because at that point, when it goes into a FAR or the DFAR, it becomes mandatory, at least for that particular agency that has regulatory authority over the group that they're dealing with. Yes, thank you. 
How does NIST monitor the performance of a special publication over time once it's finalized? Well, every NIST publication goes through a developmental sequence. And our entire process at NIST is based on transparency, openness, collaboration with our partners. Everybody's involved that wants to be involved. So it's certainly all the federal agencies. It's all of our private sector partners, contractors, universities, research organizations, industry, not just the United States, but worldwide. Governments around the world comment on our publications. The idea is we want to do the best job we can of developing the technical standards and guidelines we possibly can. But to do that, there's nothing like the light of sunshine and the inputs from the worldwide community to help make those documents as good as they can be. So typically, we will go through several iterations. You'll see an initial public draft, maybe a second public draft, a final draft, and then a final publication. And you can kind of think of it as we're starting out very wide. And every time we get feedback, we narrow that set of comments down until we get to that sweet spot where the document's ready for prime time, the final publication. And we pull the trigger and that document goes final. Once it's final, we still don't stop. We will continue to take comments and suggestions from all of our customers, public and private sector. Any time after that document is published and we put them in a file and at some point in time, either through our comments that are coming in or other events may dictate, maybe there's new threats that emerge or different technologies that are now coming around. And we feel the need to update that document to make sure those safeguards and countermeasures are state-of-the-art for our customers. That would trigger an update process. And we you see that routinely on all of our pubs. We're up to revision five now and NIST 853. The RMF pub's gone through at least two revisions since we published the original document. Mm -hmm. And that's just part of who we are in our DNA. We have to continuously change in order to make sure you're staying up to speed on the latest and greatest threats and technologies and safeguards for your customers. That's kind of how we roll in, in that transparency is really critical to the quality of the product that we produce in NIST. That's very interesting. Does NIST or any other agency that you know of track the adoption of 800-171 and the current revision that agencies are using? We don't have any formal statistics on that. I get our best number of downloads on our website of the publication okay. or hits on the website. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that before Rev 5 came out, the uh, NIST 853, that is our most downloaded publication. At least it was the last time I checked up to mm -hmm. 2023. We had uh, over 20 million hits wow. and downloads on our website for NIST 853 revision 4. That, that was like a three or four year time period between the updates, but it was an enormous uh, footprint out there. We know the feds use the NIST standards and guidelines because they're required to do so, but there's an enormous usage by the private sector, either because they're under contract to the feds or they find that the guidance and the standards are, are just good for their business. And whether they had to comply with this or not, my position was take a look at what we have. It's all free of charge. Well, mm -hmm. kind of not free because you pay my salary. So uh, all the taxpayers have paid for these documents, but everything on our website is available for free. And you may not use a lot of it. You may only use some of it, but it's worth checking out to help build your security program. And I would also encourage not just our website, but you can go to international standards. Like there's some great ISO documents, IEEE documents, and, and a lot of our standards and guidelines over time may eventually get pushed out into the international community, like FIPS 140. That's the crypto standard. That's been pushed out into the international uh, standards arena. We're always looking for opportunities to collaborate internationally. We're members of all the different standards bodies. Mm. And the only reason that NIST would develop a specific standard and not be part of the international standard is because it might not 
exactly fit our needs in the federal government. Our industry, which is very important to innovation and the economic and national security of the country, they operate on a global basis. They're selling their goods and services worldwide. So you'd like to have standards that can apply to a wide variety of organizations and countries and people so Mm -hmm. our industry can compete and compete well and do what they do best. And you alluded to this. So you all do collaborate on other security standards like ISO 27001. Can you tell us about that? Well, ISO 27001 is a really interesting example. The original reason why we didn't defer to that standard is because if you were to go back and look when NIST 853 started back in 2004, 5, 6 timeframe, I went and I did a lot of research. I looked at all the different controls, not just in the United States, but around the world. And especially ISO 27001, and I guess the actual controls are in 27002. Yes. the implementation part. But if you were to stand up the different control catalogs side by side, and we did this, we did a mapping of their controls to our controls, and there was a lot of white space on the ISO 27000 side of the house. Why? Because just by definition, their catalog operated at a little bit of a higher level of generality. There weren't as many controls, they weren't as specific. In our catalog, we had specific needs for controls that were not only general, like the FIPS 200 level of requirements, but we also needed those specific controls that talked about multi-factor authentication or specific encryption or boundary protection, contingency Mm -hmm. planning. We had a lot of different controls across our, what are now 20 families that either were not represented in ISO 27001-2 or they were represented, but not to the level of detail that we needed. So we've tried over the years, we've been operating on two separate parallel paths. There are lots and lots of customers in our private sector that use ISO 27001 and 2. It's a very good standard. And in their world, that's better for them because they are competing globally. But on the other hand, there's a lot of them that also use 853, not because they have to, but they, it provides more granularity down at the technical level than you might find in the ISO standard. So I don't like to pick and choose and say one's better than the other. I think you have to use the right standard, the right guidance document for the right purpose, just like the tools out there. Pick the right tools, the right framework that suit your needs, but whatever you pick, get good at it. Make sure your execution is top-notch and you don't leave any stones unturned. Thank you. Let's shift to NIST 800-160. You mentioned cyber resilience. Talk to us about 800-160. I've been on two tracks in NIST. The FISMA common criteria, that's a whole world in and of itself. And I characterize that work as kind of above the waterline things. We're building frameworks and we're building control that organizations implement and try to build their security program. But there is a whole other world, um, what I call below the waterline. That's the world of engineering. Feds don't build a lot of stuff. They have contractors, they have integrated teams, but there's a whole group of people out there building software, firmware, hardware, and systems. And all that work I characterize below the waterline because most of the time our consumer, whether you're a consumer on the federal side or the private sector side, you're still a consumer and your basic understanding of what's in that black box is pretty close to zero. You're up to the user interface. You can interact with the system. It has capability. You can see what's happening. But as far as understanding who built the software, what they did to build the software, what kind of processes they went through to engineer that system. And don't forget, systems are not just individual software or firmware components. Those are conglomerations of 
hundreds of thousands of system elements or components that come together in what I would call the stack. The stack is the user interface, the application, the middleware, the operating system, the network devices, the firmware, all of that comes together as part of something we call a system with capability. And in the world of engineering, you're not only building the individual piece parts, but then you're putting those all together. So when you're building a system, and this is where 800 really starts to shine because it defines the world of security, not in the stove pipe that we're used to, but it says that really security is just another emergent property that comes out of a good systems engineering process. Just like all the illities, survivability, reliability, things that come out of a good engineering process, security is one more of those things. And so now the engineering world is looking at how are each one of those components being built? For example, are you using secure coding techniques and the best practices in software engineering? Most of our security problems, it ends up, are software engineering issues. The fact that we're sloppy and how we build code and we're not applying the uh, the best practices. OWASP has done a great job of defining the top 20 web vulnerabilities or things like that. There are all kinds yeah. of history of those things. And so in 80 now, we're looking at not just how those individual components are built and having more transparency to the individual components, but then how are those put together in a process that disciplined mm-hmm. and structured, you can see early in that lifecycle process where the mission and business analysis takes place, stakeholder requirements and needs are developed, and part of the needs are protection needs. And that spawns a set of system and security requirements. It's all very disciplined and structured. And so instead of relying on a set of controls coming out of ER 53, the mission is driving everything and how much protection you need is based on the mission. And yet some of those requirements, they may reference 853 because those controls look a lot like requirements, but those may also come from the mission space and things that are unique to that particular mission or environment of operation, like at NASA, for example. The idea is to have that discipline and structure And as you move through that engineering process, there's a term that we use a lot that's called assurance and Mm -hmm. trustworthiness. Mm -hmm. And that means that as we build that system, we're using well-defined design principles and concepts, and we're bringing in assurance techniques. We're doing design analysis, design documentation. We're really understanding how those modules are designed, how they're put together. And we'd like that system to be trustworthy, secure. We'd like to have that level of confidence that system is not going to fail at an inopportune time. And we talked about that with regard to pacemakers and the grid. This is why we're so passionate about moving below the waterline. And this is part of the impetus for industry now and and the the guidance, I should say, the executive orders and, and some of the laws and policies coming out at the very highest levels of the federal government that talk about Xbox, software bill of materials. That's all to give customers more transparency into how those software products were developed. Today, as consumers, we are flying blind. We buy products because they have great capability. They're innovative. They do lots of cool things. But if I'm hooking that up to a critical component in my automobile, we should have some assurance as consumers that we know how that component was developed, how that component was integrated into that automobile system where those computers, hundreds of computers are controlling the braking system of that automobile, the safety critical feature. I believe that's the future of cybersecurity. It's bringing Mm -hmm. cybersecurity into the world of engineering and Mm -hmm. not being the focal point of that, but engineering process is the focal point. What we're building, the cost, the schedule, the performance of that system is the most important thing to support the mission. How the security emerges from that process is no more important than safety 
that's emerging from it or reliability or all those different abilities that have been around a long time. Mm-hmm. And they're very disciplined, sub-disciplined to the engineering process. So that's why 160 is so important. And we just don't give it enough focus right now, but we're going to keep the heat on this thing and keep the light shining on that problem until we start to see some, some more uptake in that. What is NIST's position on public and private partnerships to solve complex cyber issues? In general, I think public and private partnerships are absolutely essential to moving the ball forward. I, I use the example that is close to my heart. I was a huge fan. I still am a huge fan of NASA. And uh, I go back a long way, as we were talking about. And I remember when I was about 10 years old, and President Kennedy had a famous speech. We were at a missile rate at that point in time with the old Soviet Union. And there was a perception that we were behind in that space race. And the president came out and said, we're going to go to the moon and do other things by the end of this decade, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Mm -hmm. That was kind of a call, I thought, to the best and the brightest of the American people. He was speaking to federal employees. He was speaking to industry. He was speaking to people in the academic community. Those are kind of the three components of the essential partnership I call government, industry, and academia. And they came together. And just think about this. From that speech, it wasn't eight years later, July the 20th, 1969. I remember that day because I'd been at West Point for less than three weeks. And they woke us up in the middle of the night and they marched us to a big auditorium and watched the first moon landing. It was awesome to think that we landed a man of the moon in eight years with 1950s and early 1960s competing technology. It was the engineering feat and masterpiece that may never be achieved again, at least in that time frame. So when you talk to me about public-private partnerships, any problem that is as difficult and challenging in a cybersecurity mm-hmm. cannot be solved unless you have that essential partnership, combination, collaboration with government, industry, and academia. Each one of those partners brings something different to the table. And we have to be able to bring what we can, share, collaborate, have a common vision, common focus, and then hopefully get to that place where we ought to be, those goals, those objectives, the vision that we've set out for whatever we want to deal with in that partnership. That's what I would say. It's critical. Uh, We probably do a lot of that now, but I think you can always do more. Well, thank you. Any last thoughts that you'd like to add? No, I think it's been great. I, I, I really appreciate taking the time for this kind of long for podcast. I know it's a long time to listen, but there's so much to talk about in our field. And we have so many tremendous professionals in the field of cybersecurity, whether they're working in federal agencies or private sector, academic mm-hmm. uh, universities. I have such respect and appreciation for all those people in the trenches that do this job every day. It's not easy. They get up and they're underappreciated, probably underpaid in many cases. And my job has always been the easy job of developing the standards and the guidelines. The hard part is doing the things that you do and all your colleagues through the trenches. And I, I take my hat off to them. I salute them. And I hope to be able to serve and make their lives easier uh, in the future. And again, thanks for this extended time today. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Take care.